The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife will go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall be his slave forever." When a man sells his daughter as a slave, he shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not, um, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee." But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die, but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money." When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe." When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall shall not be liable." But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. 
If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, guys. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Sacred City Church. What a passage, huh? Um, <laughs> I'm going to pray because I need the Lord's help today. Father, we thank you for this morning to come together as your people to do something that's really countercultural, while the, while the rest of the world might be sleeping or working, um, whatever it is they're doing, we have devoted a morning to you of rest and worship to come and to hear of your mercies that are new every day, to lift your name up high as it deserves to be raised, and to say that you are the one that we cling to, that you are our hope, our only hope in life and death. And as that is true, we come to your word to be instructed, to be encouraged, to be, in, to be taught uh, how your ways are not our ways. Your ways are so much higher, so much loftier. And in that, you pull back the veil on the gospel for us to show us what you are like, your heart for your people. So today, I pray as we dive into this sort of bizarre text that you would help us to see your heart for your people that we would see you in a way, maybe that we haven't seen you before, and that you would store our affections for you, that you would increase our worship for you in a way that, that creates change in our city. Father, I need your help this morning as a servant of your word. Would you fill me up with your spirit? Would you give me your thoughts? Would you give me your words? Would you give me your heart? so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we have been going through the book of Exodus. Um, we, chapter by chapter, um, that's how we do it at Sacred City. We preach, preach exegetically, and that's how we stumble upon bizarre passages like this. Um, and so what we've done actually is for the last 10 weeks, we have been camped out in chapter 20, which is um, where God unpacks the Ten Commandments for the first time ever. Um, and so we've gone commandment by commandment through that, that chapter 20. And now we've finally gotten past the halfway point through our study in Exodus. And from here, it'll kind of pick up pace a little bit. Um, and I will say that spending 10 weeks in, in the Ten Commandments, our scripture readers have gotten pretty good at reading the Ten Commandments each week. So I thought it was about time for a change to continue moving forward, and so um, it just happens to be kind of strange. Um, if you're joining us, I want to set the stage because of the bizarre nature of this text. If you're jumping in, it's like, why are we talking about slaves? This has no impact on my life. Um, here's why. Let me, let, me tell, let me set the stage because in the first half of the book of Exodus, it's really all about God delivering his people. That's, that's really what chapters 
One, I mean, really, they're delivered up in chapter 15 is when it really happens. And then 15 through 20 is sort of this in-between period. Um, But it's really all about God delivering his people from slavery, from Egyptian slavery. For 400 years, they had been oppressed. They had been dehumanized. They had been marginalized. They had been treated like the scum of the earth so that Pharaoh's agenda could go forward at at their own compromise. And God heard the cries of his people. It was brutal slavery. If you want to go back and read uh, through the beginning of Exodus, you can see just how brutal it was for these people. And God hears their cries. He sees their agony, and he does something about it. And so through a series of plagues, he raises up, actually, he raises up this man named Moses who goes to Pharaoh and says, give me my people. We want to go worship God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh is resistant to that. So God starts dropping these plagues and making life hard for the Egyptians until the final plague happens where God delivers the blow, right? Where the firstborn, all the firstborn males of Egypt are killed as the angel of death comes and passes through Egypt. And all those who had blood, the blood of an innocent lamb painted over their doorpost, were spared. So the Israelite people were spared from this plague hitting. And then what happens is Pharaoh gets so upset, it's finally like the last straw. Get, he says, get out of here. He, he dismisses uh, Moses and the people of Israel, says, get out of my face, and he sends them out. And, and so they go And they're making their way out of Egypt, and they finally get pinned up against the Red Sea, and behind them is is Pharaoh's army pursuing after them. It looks like certain death, but in the final act of judgment upon Egypt, God parts the Red Sea, allows his people to pass through safely to to what is now free land for them. And then as Pharaoh and his army pursues after them, God wipes them out and closes the Red Sea upon them. And so God delivers his people. One day, they were slaves. The next they were free. The grip of Egypt had been loosened from them. And so, so now God's people find themselves in sort of a new place. Their life has changed in the most radical sense. So they're wondering, what do we do now? How do we live our lives? For 400 years, all we've known was how to do what we've been told. And now there's nobody telling us what to do. No, no slave driver. There's no Pharaoh pushing us harder and harder. And so The question that really comes out of this is what kind of people will God's people become? What kind of society, what sort of culture needs to be created in order to prevent God's people from slipping back into life in Egypt, right? Going back, reverting back to life of slavery. And so in chapter 19, God begins telling his people what it looks like. He's going to say, hey, I'm, I'm making you a holy nation, a people for my own possession. And this is what it's going to look like. So he gathers his people at the base of Mount Sinai. And here God is going to come down. He's going to be with his people. But actually, the people are terrified. Uh, God is saying, hey, come down to the base of the mountain, but you can't go up it because if I come down and you're on the mountain, you'll get destroyed and wiped out because I'm holy and you're not. And so God makes a provision for them, gather at the base of the mountain. And, and so God descends. And in this, we see lightning and thunder. There's a, a thick cloud of smoke filling the air. There's trumpet blasts. There's, well, we're told there's fire descending from heaven. And then God, out of this chaos with an earthquake going on on top of that, God speaks to his people with this booming voice that leaves them terrified. Never have they heard something like this before. And God speaks to them, and he gives them what we know are the 12, or the 10, 12, the 10 words. <laughs> there are not 12. 
he gives them the ten words, the ten commandments. And these ten commandments are God's moral and spiritual law. They're objective laws for goodness. It says this is what it looks like to be a holy people, to observe these ten things. Now, I think when we, when we think of the Ten Commandments, I think especially culture as well, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we see them as this list of rules of do's and don'ts, right? What I should do, what I shouldn't do, you know, just got to follow through, check the boxes. But really, what I hope you've seen over the last 10 weeks is far more than that. That really, God's aim in these Ten Commandments is at the heart and not behavior. See, if God was just concerned about behavior modification, it, it would be one thing, right, to, to be good people, but what God is wanting his people to be is to be people who love deeply, who love God and love one another as you love yourself. And so a, a better way to look at the Ten Commandments, more than just a list of rules of do's and don'ts, is to see them as God's safety rails, his guardrails that he puts out around his, his people in an act of love to prevent them from going off the deep end, right, to keep them from going off the edge. It's like if, you're, if you've driven through Colorado and you're driving up the mountains, right, and there's guardrails all the way around as you kind of do those switchbacks, right, the Ten Commandments are like those guardrails that keep us from going over the edge. As long as we're on the correct side of the guardrails, things are going to go well for us. But as soon as we venture to the other side, there's certain destruction that's about to happen. And, and we see that in, in the societal downfall and collapse when these laws aren't kept. And so God gathers his people on Mount Sinai, and he lays out these timeless and objective standards for spiritual and moral goodness. And, and really what we saw last 10 weeks is that they're still in effect today, that these moral standards are still guiding principles for the church. It's not just behavior modification. It's not, not just to get us to do the right things, but to love the right things, that there's a focus on our affections, which translates to our behavior. It's all about, it's shaping, these Ten Commandments are shaping what we love, and we see this to be true. When Jesus sums up the Ten Commandments himself, he's asked, what are the great, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, well, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all, all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. It's about loving God. And he says that the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, when he sums up the Ten Commandments, it's all about love. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, echoes this in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says that if I, if I don't have love, then I have nothing. So it's like you could do all these things, but if it's not motivated by love, you're not actually keeping these Ten Commandments. Now, when God lays out these Ten Commandments, sort of, the love language of God to his people and how to create this society, this culture of love toward God and love toward one another, this creates a picture of heaven. To keep these 10 commandments gives us a picture of what heaven will be like, not because God's people are morally superior, but because they're driven and guided by love. See, it's, it's our love for God that leads us to destroy the false idols in our life and worship him alone. It's our love for others that leads us to honor our father and our mother, to not murder, to not covet, to not lie and steal. And so it's this love, this culture of love that drives God's people. And now we're heading into chapter 21, a passage that might seem contrary to that. 
right? Because in it, we're going to see this, this idea of slavery, right? And the question I hope you're asking is, how can you love your neighbor if you own them? Right? How can you love your neighbor if you own them? It doesn't seem like that's compatible. Now, because of that, this might be one of those passages that we're tempted to scrap, Right? Now, I guarantee you, this week, not very many of you, maybe two people, read chapters 21, 22, and 23 of Exodus for personal devotions this week. No, nobody did that, right? Because this is one of those texts that seems so foreign, so strange to us. What is in this text for us, you know? And so there's this temptation to want to scrap it. Even me as a preacher, I'm here like, oh, I don't want to preach about this. It's not my first choice, that's for sure. But because we're told that all scripture is breathed out from God, that all scripture is profitable to equip and to train God's people for every good work that he's called us to, I believe that God has something for us in this passage today. I think that there's something profound that the Lord wants to do in and among and through his people that this text as we rightly understand it, as we dig into it, will compel us into a greater love for God and for our neighbor, for the people in our lives, whether it be coworkers, neighbors, friends, family. But in order to understand this beauty of what's going on here, we need to do some heavy lifting. We need to do some study work today. And so I'll warn you that this First part, actually, the, the bulk of this sermon, and I don't like doing this, but it's, it's sort of necessary when you come to a passage like this. The first part of the sermon is going to be a lot of teaching. We're going to go through and ask the question, what does this mean? Okay, so we're going to go through that way. And I'll, I'll warn you that this passage reads a lot more like a, a legal document than it does some sort of epic story or some sort of really instructional, here's what I need to do now, moving forward sort of thing. So... So bear with me, but I promise you that there is gold here, right? There is something profound that's being revealed to us about who God is. And I think what you'll see is that God has a heart for the powerless. See, this is why we're calling this mini-series the next three weeks. We're calling it Protecting the powerless, that as soon as God sets up his Ten Commandments and what this new society is going to look like, the first thing he does and instruction that he gives is how to protect those who are viewed as weak in our culture. See, God in his new society in this culture is saying, hey, I am mindful of the least of these. Now, I think this is both encouraging and challenging to us, to know that God is mindful of the least of these and how he goes about being mindful of them through the people who actually have power. And so it's, it's, it's challenging and encouraging at the same time because we can find ourselves on either side of the fence of this. There are times where we are given power, right? Maybe we are powerful people. We have affluence. We have influence. We have the ability to culture, shape, and direct people, whether that's appointed to us at work, at home, or in the church, or maybe in the public eye, just because of your socioeconomic standing with your wealth or your cultural influence, some of us might be powerful people in a sense. And there are other people who cannot relate to that at all, who maybe feel powerless. Right? There are times where you feel like you don't have a, vo- a voice. Maybe you feel like it's, you're susceptible to being taken advantage of. So given that there are probably these two people, two groups of people in the room, 
there's both encouragement and challenge because the challenge comes that as we are people who have power, there's this temptation to use power for ourselves, for our own end game. We, it's a selfish mentality that I'm going to look out for the one who's on top. I'm going to look out for me, and I don't care who I have to step on to get to where I need to be. I'm going to do it because I have power. Now, when I was thinking about examples of this, there's literally thousands of examples throughout world history. But one of the ones that sticks out in my mind the most is uh, the story about a guy named Martin Shkreli. Maybe you've heard of him over the last couple of years. Um, Martin Shkreli has become known as America's most hated man, and here's why. I'll tell you why. Back in 2015, um, he was a CEO of a pharmaceutical company, um, and they made a, a product that was for, specifically helped people with AIDS um, and other sort of diseases typically would leave these people marginalized. And so they had a, a decent product. I'm not a phar- pharmacist, so I don't know how great this was. Maybe Jim can speak into that later. Um, but he had this product that was relatively affordable, $13 a pill. People who really needed this medication, $13 a pill. In 2015, Martin Screlly took that pill and he jacked the price up to $750 a pill. $750 a pill. Now, that right there is a corruption of power as the CEO. And, and I don't know if there was much competition on the market. I would assume if he could do that, there wouldn't be much competition for that, that medication. But he took advantage of those who were dependent upon his medication and exploited those people. He used power for his own gain. Now, what I want you to see here is that power, when we see power isn't a bad thing. See, power power is actually, when when rightly understood, it's a good thing. But it's a good thing that can go bad. But the purpose of power is to promote human flourishing. Andy Crouch, he's a former writer of Christianity Today. He's a, a cultural commentator, and he's written extensively on this idea of power. Um, In an interview, he said this. He said, the purpose of power is flourishing. Flourishing is fullness of being, being everything that we were created to be. And the biblical witness seems to be that human beings are given a special kind of power, an image-bearing power. And this power is meant for the flourishing of the world. And so just kind of piggybacking off of that. So if you have been given power, you, you haven't been given power for the sake of yourself and promoting your own agenda. You've been given power for the sake of the world and promoting human flourishing across the board. See, this is why the same chapter can be so encouraging, right? If you are a person who feels powerless, weak, and vulnerable, to know that those who have power ought to be using it to help you move up the latter, so to speak. So you're not so vulnerable. So you're not so weak and powerless. God's laying out in, in this chapter here, when we take a 30,000 foot view of what's going on here, God is laying out the rules or the code for society where the powerless don't get trampled on. He's, he's showing his people what this holy nation looks like. And this holy nation protects and promotes those who are not as fortunate. Protects, promotes the weak, the vulnerable, and the powerless. And so we're going to dig into this beautiful text. (laughs) 
and, and we're going to explore this out. And really what's going on here, as God has given the Ten Commandments, he's sort of fleshing out these commandments. What does this look like in practical life? Now, I should say this. So I don't know if I've said this yet, but, but there are basically three categories of law. There's moral law, which is what we see in the Ten Commandments. There's civil law, which God gives here through the Mosaic law about how people are to interact with each other in a given social setting. So when we look at these laws, they're not necessarily in, in practice or applicable to us because we are not the original uh, uh, audience for these laws. This is for the Israelite people as they are going toward the promised land. And then, and then there's the uh, uh, ceremonial law, which we'll get into at some point with, with um, offerings and sacrifices when it comes to the Levit- Levitical law and how to do that and to be right. So this part of, of scripture here, this is civil law, God teaching his people how to interact with one each other in light of the moral law. And so it's, it's not something that's binding to us today, okay? When we're talking about slaves and, and your ox gorging people, that, that's not really about our society and our, our civilization here, but there are undergirding principles that will help guide us as we move forward here in the 21st century. And as God sort of fleshes out these uh, practical parts of the moral law, it, it makes sense that God would begin with the topic of slavery, given the Israelite people have spent 400 years in cyclical slavery, right? Powerless, they've been trampled on, they've been oppressed. And so God is saying, he's gathering together, he says, guys, my ways are different. My ways are not going to be like what you experienced in Egypt. And so here are the rules that are going to prevent this from happening. So take a look. Chapter, Exodus chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, we got to stop. We got to stop here. We got to talk about slave and, and what this passage means by slavery here. Our Western minds automatically sort of jump to the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade when we see the word slave. And this is where Africans were stolen from their homes by white men, separated from their family, forced into sh- onto ships, transported thousands of miles from home, sold to plantation owners, forced to work long days, beaten, raped, tortured, completely dehumanized, where even animals were treated better than they were. Terrible, terrible thing. We look back at that, and that is probably one of the darkest parts of our civilization as Americans. Such an understatement. But this is not, well, and and actually what even makes this even darker is that to justify such horrific demonic acts, scripture was twisted and wielded in a way that promoted this agenda. And and actually what we're going to see here that as we dig into this text, the what we know as Western slavery is actually completely prohibited. There's no biblical support for it. There's no way that it could stand. So this slavery means something different. Even if you just jump to verse 16 here in chapter 21, it just, one verse destroys this. Um, Where am I at here? Actually, I may have lied about the verse. 16, oh, 16 is. Uh, Whoever steals a man and sells him, And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So that means whoever took that slave from their home, whoever transported that slave, whoever sold the slave, whoever bought the slave, 
should be killed. No way to stand, no biblical support, just boom, right knocked out from us. So what we, we see here is that this word slavery or slave, as we'll see it, it means something different than what we assume through our Western lenses. So let's dig into the Hebrew words here. Um, and as we do so, we're going to see that this, this relationship extends beyond a master and a slave, but is more uh, akin to a, a, an employee and an employer. Let's take a look. The word slave, if you look in the ESV, there's a footnote next to it, which um, will say, the, link you to the Hebrew word, abed. And this is a, a catch-all word to describe worker, servant, employee, or slave. And, and it's noted in the footnote there. Uh, of how it's used interchangeably. It's sort of this catch-all thing. At the same time, the word master, Baal, is another catch-all sort of word that's used for employer, boss, master, or owner. And then the Hebrew words that are used for buy and sell relate to any sort of financial transaction or contract. So really, what's going on here is not so much slavery in what we understand, but it's more like employee employer relationship where, uh, where there's a contract that's laid out that says uh, uh, an employee or a servant says, I'm going to submit myself to you, my master, my boss, for X amount of time and for X amount of money. It's a contract. It's a, it's a, um, a work contract, if you will. Now, this is similar how to how professional athletic teams do business as well. It's free agency season in the NFL. I know it's baseball season. Some of you guys follow baseball, but I'm an NFL guy all day. Um, and anytime I can talk about the NFL and the Oakland Raiders, I'll take it. So it's, it's free agency season. At this point in this, the year, there are athletes who are no longer affiliated with a team that maybe their previous contracts have expired or they're coming just free agents. So there are organizations that are looking to hire athletes to help them win championship games. So for example... Uh, the Oakland Raiders would function in this scenario as the master, where they're the ones who are cutting the check. They're the ones that have a job to offer. So the master, Oakland Raiders, are going to go to find an athlete that they believe can help them win a championship game. And they're going to go to them and say, hey, for, um, for $10 million, we want to sign you to a three-year contract. So for three years, you are going to work for us, and we will compensate you for that. Now, this, in this scenario, the athlete could be sort of linked to the servant or the slave in, in this text. And so there's this contract that's made that said, okay, for $10, $10 million, three years, I am devoted to you. Now, this doesn't mean that the organization actually owns this person, right? doesn't mean that. But it does mean that this person, their skills are to be devoted to their employer for the duration of their contract. And so at the end of the three years or whenever their contract expires, that person can either be re-signed to that same franchise or move on to the next employer. And so it's, when you frame it up like that, this is not that bizarre, right? This makes sense. Some of us work on contracts where we have a duration of time where we're compensated. And what, what also is helpful to understand is that these people who are seen as servants or slaves, they, do, they voluntarily take this position. It's not that they're forced into this position of slavery or servanthood. They voluntarily take this position, just like someone who would enlist in the military. They voluntarily put themselves forward. And there's a few reasons why somebody might do this. Okay, financially, 
This person will be compensated. They'll either be compensated up front, <coughs> excuse me, they'll either be compensated up front for their service, so they'll have a time where they're given X amount of money, and then when the certain time hits, they go and start working, or they'll be compensated at the end of their contract. So there's financial gains in putting yourself in servanthood or in slavery to a master, but there's also some other uh, very beneficial things for this person who might put themselves in a place of servanthood. The, the second thing is that they have the opportunity to be provided for. As a servant, as a slave, your master is responsible for clothing you, for feeding you, um, for giving you whatever equipment you need to do the job that's in front of you. And so there's this provisional aspect of putting yourself under the care of somebody else that's actually quite beneficial to a person in a place of, of servanthood. And, that, and there's a, a third reason that's really helpful is to understand that this is a time where you as a servant could develop a trade. Right? You learn a task, you learn a skill, so that at the end of your contract, you can be sent out and do your own thing. It's, it's kind of like how we do apprenticeships today, where you come on as an apprentice, you put in so many hours, you learn how to do a certain trade, you promote to a journeyman, and then from there, you kind of advance to becoming a master whatever, where you can kind of go out and do your own thing. It's the same sort of idea, and this is really essential for a culture to move forward and to be advanced. To have this, uh, this ability to, to train and to equip and to um, make people capable of doing the work that's set before them. It's really a lot like discipleship, if you think about it. To come in, to, to invest with someone, um, to grow up, and you start discipling someone, and then you, you sort of make your way through your spiritual journey to the point where you're making disciples who make disciples. It's very similar. And so there are several reasons why someone would actually make themselves a servant, make themselves a slave. But one of the things that God does right up front is he makes it clear that this servanthood, this slave sort of thing is different than what they had in Egypt. Egypt, again, 400 years, continual slavery. Now, God says here in verse 2 that this is different. Take a look. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. So there is a time cap on this slavery. Six years you work hard, and then on the seventh year, you're free to go. That is so different than what we know in Western slavery, what what they experienced in Egyptian slavery, that there's a time cap on this. You're not a slave forever. Whereas with Western and Egyptian slavery, it was like once a slave, always a slave. And God is saying this is different. This is way different. There's freedom. There's opportunity at the end of slavery. There is the ability for you to kind of create a new life for yourself. And it's really interesting that as we continue on, we see that this opportunity that God gives these people also includes the family. Take a look at verses 3 and three through 6. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. Uh, Yep, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an owl and he shall be his slave forever. Now, this is one of those parts, like, what's going on here? 
what's going on here is that this is a law that's set up, a rule that's set up to protect both the slave and the master here. It protects the master in the sense that, that if a slave uh, or servant comes in single, he goes out single. So that means if he goes in, he gets married, he can't just pick up his family and leave when his contract's over because his wife still has time on her contract that she owes to this master. And so it protects the master in this sense. But it also protects the slave or the servant in the sense that the master is not allowed to split up the family. That if he comes in married, he is sent out married. Now, if if he, he slave were to happen to get married while he was in servanthood to his master, he's basically got one of two options what he can do here. First option that, that's laid out is he can... He can retire from his life as a servant. It says he can go out alone. Now, let me be clear here, because this is like, oh, he's abandoning his family? Is that what he's doing? No, that's, that's really not the case. He's going out away from his master. He's still married to his wife. He still has his children who he's responsible for. God is not condoning the abandonment of families. God never does that. He's still committed to them, but what he's doing now is he's under a new employer. He's going out to make a life for himself so that when his wife and his children are released from their years of service, that he has already created a place for them to live, he's got a career going, and he's got the ability to care for his family. Now, option number two would be something that if if he loves his master, which is if he can genuinely say, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my kids, he can voluntarily re-enlist himself for permanent servanthood. Now, one thing to keep in mind here is that the way that a master treats a servant, especially as we're commanded in in the New Testament and how that relationship looks like, it should be one of mutual respect, okay? And so there's this concept of relationship that's going on here that that they actually love each other. They like each other. They're maybe even friends, and so the, the slave can say or the servant can say, I, I love my master. I, I love working for him. He treats me well. I'm going to continue to live under his life of provision and blessing, and my family will get to enjoy that as well. And so he says, I'll become a permanent slave to you. And so he goes, the, the master takes him to the temple or the tabernacle at the time, and they go before God and say, hey, this is a covenant that we're making, not only to one another but before God so that we will always know that our relationship to one another. And so that's when they bore out an ear. They put the owl in there, gauge the ear so people know that he is not for hire anymore. He has committed himself to this master for life. So that's option number two. And and when we see them both and kind of really understand them, both are kind of good options, right, for the slave. It's it's mutually beneficial for the the, the owner and the servant. It's really in the best interest for both parties. And and so one thing that really needs to be made clear is that a servant can only stay a servant if that person is willing to take that role to do it voluntarily. So there's a different, different dynamic here. We can see contrast between um, Western slavery and, and what's going on here <clears throat> as the people are at Mount Sinai. And, and so we'll continue on. And this next chunk of scripture might seem even more bizarre as we see a father selling his daughter into slavery. Again, why? Like, why? What, what would call for such a thing? Again, there's financial, there's provisionary, there's, and there's just the potential for this girl to have a better life. So a father, perhaps if he's very poor, 
unable to provide for his family in, in the way he ought to, he has the option to offer up his daughter as a servant, um, and that can take a couple of different roles, um, to give her a better future, to, to, to enlist her into the servanthood of someone who has maybe financially more well off. Now, this cannot be done without the consent of the daughter. A dad can't just say, well, I'm tired of you. You get out the door. Um, this is something that the daughter has to willingly, voluntarily be into as well. And we're not talking like little girls, okay? We're talking like young women here. And so it lays out what this looks like here in verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, he shall not go out as the male servants do, slaves do. And so right away we see here that the female servants are treated differently than how male servants are treated. They don't enlist themselves into physical labor. Um, Rather, they are household helpers or even some take on a role of sort of a kind of wife, sort of like a concubine. And there's some weird situations why this would be justifiable um, at this time in in Scripture, that if a man um, was married and had a wife and they had kids, um, the kids of his first wife would be entitled to an inheritance. And so if he's at the age in his life where he, he needs that partner but doesn't want to destroy the inheritance that the rest of his family would be given because if he were to marry and then die, then this, his wife would have control over the estate where she could direct all the money to their future children and neglect the, um, the, the, the children of the first wife. And so this is sort of a safety structure for the kids of the first marriage as well as this woman. So, um, so they essentially function as husband and wife without the sort of contractual legal thing here. And I know this, when there's money involved, it, get, it gets kind of sketchy here. What do you mean you're selling her as a slave? This is kind of weird. It is. But it's not like that because, again, this is a relation. This is an interaction that requires relationship where this master actually cares for this young woman in a way that he is going to look out for her and love her as if she is a wife. And so the, the, the master makes a, a commitment to the father to genuinely care for her to, and provide for her. And even though money is exchanged and a contract is drawn up, this is done in the context of relationship. And verse 8 continues. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since she has since he has broken faith with her. See, there's this sort of covenantal thing that if he's the one that's saying, okay, I'm not very happy with the situation, I'm gonna break it off. He, the master, is the one who broke faith, and so therefore he's the one that sort of pays the consequences as he's already shelled out money to have this woman be in service to him, and now he basically suffers loss. He can't sell her off anymore. She is to be freed. So, there's protection for that woman again, that she can't be, for, she can't be sold off into a foreign land of slavery, um, that, that the master has obligations to keep to her. And so in not keeping those, the master is the one who voids the contract. Verse 9 continues with this thought. If the master designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. Okay, so this is, this is actually one of the most gracious things that can happen here, where, where someone goes from being poor servant girl to now she is the daughter of a wealthy man. 
she's got, she's married. She, she has the opportunity for her family and to grow up, to have an inheritance. And so this is one of the gracious things that God makes for um, this, this daughter who might be married to a, a son of a servant. And so she's written into the will. She gains the inheritance, completely new status as a daughter. Now, verse 10 talks about how this woman ought to be treated if a master brings around another lady. And I will recommend not doing this. doesn't work out well, right? Just stick to one. Um, the Old Testament, actually, let me say this. The Old Testament practice, so the way that the people lived in the Old Testament, it makes it very hard to dismantle the argument for polygamy. Very hard. We can go through and we can see Abraham with Sarah and Haggai. We can go through and see um, all kinds of uh, um, King David, Saul, um, Solomon. There's all kinds of examples of polygamy and where that's. But here's the thing. Let me say this. This covenant law that God lays out merely tolerates this. It does never endorse or promote Polygamy, because God's intentions for marriage have always been one man, one woman for life. That's the way it's always has been. That's the way it's always been. But sinful man has always found a way around this. They've always, well, maybe there's this exception, or maybe if I don't call her my wife, I call her my concubine, and that's, you know, gets me around it. Well, that's not the case. That was not God's design. And so what God does here, because of of the sinfulness of man's heart. He makes a concession for these women who are likely to be neglected or to be harmed through this act of polygamy. And what he does, he, he protects them so they won't be treated like secondhand mail order brides. That's what he's doing in verses 10 through 11. Take a look. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. He can't deprive her of intimacy. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So here, if, if, if this woman involved in some sort of polygamy thing here, love triangle, she has a way out. If she's neglected, if she's not provided for, if she's not actually treated like a wife, then she has the ability to, excuse me, to leave. That's her, her right, as you will. And I want to jump ahead to, to verse 15 and kind of keep moving here. I know there's still a lot to go. Um, verse 15 and verse 17 essentially echo and reverberate the command, fifth commandment about honoring your father and your mother. Um, verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Any sort of physical attack against your parents is going to get you killed. And now the, what, what he's specifically targeting here is parents in their old age, right, where kids are like, man, mom and dad got buku bucks. We just need to get them out of the picture, and we're going to get that. So they might, I can't even think, they might strike their parents, either speed along their death or to kill them altogether so they can have access to that. Now, God prohibits that. You cannot deliver a blow to your parents. Verse 17, even cursing your parents can earn you death. With cursing your parents is essentially killing your parents with your words. So it's not so much swearing at them, but as so much as... Um, disowning them, abandoning them, saying in their old age, I, I want nothing to do with them. I don't, I don't want to have any sort of relationship with them. That can also bring upon the death penalty. And so what we see here is that even in this, these two verses here, God cares for the weak and the vulnerable, those who are maybe of age past their prime. He cares about how these kids treat their parents. 
And rather than getting rid of them or pushing them aside, God's people are to be known for the way that they honor those who are past their prime and maybe don't have much to contribute by the world's standards. God's mindful of the weak. Let's jump back. I'm kind of batching these together here as they're sort of related. Back to verse 12 where God goes on. Whoever strikes a man so that he shall die, or so that he dies, shall be put to death. So what he's saying here, he's reaffirming the sixth commandment. A life for a life. In a just society, if you kill somebody, you're going to be killed. Right? God is saying that we will not tolerate injustice in this sense. But then he'll even take it a step further in verse 20, and he'll tell us that it's the same for slaves and masters, that there's uh, uh, the continuation of that. And much of the ancient world would have subscribed to this sort of vengeance system, right? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I, if you kill my brother, I'm going to kill you. Rightly so in this economy. Um, verse 12 keeps going on with the fine print here. Um, Whoever strikes a man shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, if he did not premeditate, did not plan it, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place in which you may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Okay, so he's saying here, if you plan to kill someone, justice will be served. Now, there used to be this idea that if you were to, if if you sinned and you go to the altar, and you kind of lay yourself down on the altar. Uh, they would offer a sacrifice in your place. Um, it's sort of this, this sort of thing where an expression of your guilt and, and your need for forgiveness. Well, God is saying that if that, that's the case, uh-uh. If you go to the altar, you're going to die, okay, if you've planned this. But he says that if this kind of was an accident, an un, unplanned homicide, then there's a, a safety net for you. And later on in Deuteronomy, God sets up these um, cities, these cities of refuge where people who are waiting for their trial to take place can go and they can, can sort of hide out there if they have committed a crime by accident or are wrongly accused of that. So God is making a way for people who are sort of vulnerable in that state. Now, verse 18, 20, goes on about what, what happens if a, a fight breaks out and damage is done. When, a man, when men quarrel and one strikes another with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. See, when a brawl breaks out, the dude who has won the fight is actually kind of a loser in the sense that he's got to pay the guy who's hurt. Right? When he's out of commission, when he's laid up in bed, he's unable to work, the guy who's winning the fight has to basically provide insurance for this guy. This is, this is sort of the start of insurance. He's got to pay what he would be until he's healed and he can go back to work. And if you think about it, this really kind of defeats the purpose of fighting. It, first of all, if you think about it, back then there's no HR. You know, there's no like grievance counseling at this point. Like, if you got a problem with someone, you're going to sock him in the face, right? And so this fight, it's very likely that fight can break out. But God is protecting the weak, the person who might get hurt, and providing this rule where they get compensated. And, and really, when you think about it, when you think about what has to happen when someone's hurt and they're laid up in bed, can't work, it really defeats the purpose of fighting, right? Because even if you win, you're a loser. You've got to shell out money. Nowadays, 
it, we've kind of taken a step beyond that. So this, this isn't all that crazy in that if you were harmed by someone, not only can you pay for physical damages, but you can, pay, you can have them pay or sue for emotional and um, all kinds of other sort of damages that happen. So this isn't all that crazy here. Um, verse 22 talks about what happens if someone else gets caught in the crossfire here. When the men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm to the baby specifically, the one who hit her surely shall be fined, as the woman, woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay the judges determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. See, at the, at the least, there's a fine. At the worst, it's going to cost you your life if the baby is harmed and dies. Now, and what we see in verse 24 is we see, for the first time, we're introduced to Italian law. This is the eye, a life for a life, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, one thing, we're going to kind of see this pop up throughout the rest of Exodus, but one thing that we need to just kind of lay out there is, is that this Italian law is only literal in the sense of a life for a life. That's the only just payment for a life that is taken, is another life to be taken in its place. The rest, the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, is, is, is all sort of metaphorical, or it's supposed to be proportional, so that if someone's eye were to get jabbed out, it's not that you go to the other guy with a spoon and go pluck it out. It, it's supposed to hurt. What, whatever the punishment is, it's supposed to hurt as if the eye had been popped out. So this is actually something that's meant to protect the weak people from being exploited by those who are wealthy. So if it, if it were just a flat fine, you know, an eye is 1000 bucks. You knock somebody's eye out, you just have to pay them 1000 bucks. A rich person can look at their bank account, well, I got 10 Gs in here. I can knock out 10 eyes this week. That really doesn't affect them, right? There's, there's, it doesn't cost them that much. So there's this proportional um, relationship to the consequences and, and retribution to what, what goes on. So it should, for if you're a wealthy person, if you knock somebody's eye out, knock out their tooth, something... When you look at the void in your bank account, it should feel like you just got kicked in the face, right? It should be a proportional consequence for your actions. And so this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, wound for a wound, not necessarily literal, but it is setting the standard that people should be compensated fairly for whatever damages they suffer. See, uh, Douglas Stewart commentator on this, a penalty that hurts the person who ruins someone else's eye as much. I may have written this wrong. Basically, it says the thing, same thing that I just said already. <laughs> um, and so there's this proportional penalty that's taking place that protects the powerful, or protects the weak from being taken advantage of by the powerful. Um, and then now we go back to slavery. Because this, is, this, is, this sort of stuff is sort of like with common civil people, maybe master uh, against master or co-labor against co-labor. Now there's, now there's this relationship between master and servant. What does this look like? How does this apply to these as well? And so one thing that's just laid out is that uh, just because a person is sub- subordinate to another does not mean that they are inferior or less human than the other. That they're entitled to the same rights and the same um, legal rights as someone who is not necessarily a slave or a servant. Look at 20 and 21. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Now, this stumped me a little bit this week. Like, if he dies instantly, 
the master, obviously, he, he's to be avenged, that the master should be killed. But what's this about waiting a day or two? Like if he survives a day or two and then dies? Well, no, no, that's not necessarily the case. If he's laid up in bed, he's saying if, if he survives, if he, he's out of work for a day or two and he's going to survive, he's not gonna die, then the master, his, his punishment does not necessarily come um, in, a, in a beating for him, although that will probably be in play here with, with Italian law, but he actually suffers a loss himself, that in having one of his servants unable to work for a few days, he is losing out on revenue. And so that is, for the master, that's a setback. And so um, he basically has to swallow the damages himself. Now, this is to be said that the master isn't allowed to just whip up on his servants. Verses 26 and 27 lay that out for us when they say, when a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out a tooth of a slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. He's saying that if there's any permanent physical damage done to a slave, beyond just some bumps and bruises and regular HR, if you want to call it that, scuffle, then the slave is freed on account of his injury, which is great, right? If I was, if I was, I was in a position like that, I'd be trying to get socked all day long, you know, talking trash. Just, I don't need this tooth that much. But that was his ticket out. If he gets hurt physically, permanently, then he gets to be let free. And now finally, you guys have all been waiting, waiting to hear what to do when your ox gores somebody. You know, <laughs> opens up verses 28 through 32. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not. Now, just, just think for a moment. What would it take to stone an ox? <laughs> you think how, how hard that would be? Ugh. That would be a lot of work. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But the, if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give... For the redemption, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the, the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. See, may, maybe not ox, okay? I don't, I don't know anybody who owns an ox. But this is sort of a principle that would apply to pit bull owners, right? You're responsible for the actions of, of your animal. That if you have a dog that, you know, nips somebody the first time, okay, there's grace. But if it's something that's cyclically happening, continue to happen over and over again, then you as the owner are responsible for the attacks that are happening on other people. So he's saying that if, if your ox kills somebody, it gets stoned. The ox dies. The, the, the loss is swallowed by the owner. Um, they lose their animal. But if this is an animal that has a repay offense, um, then not only does the ox die, but the owner dies as well. And the way out for the owner is if, of, out of death for the owner, is if he offers a ransom. Whatever the people say goes, right? Okay. I get gored. Okay. That hurt about $50,000 worth of hurt. He has to pay me that. 
And so the same principle applies to kids. Again, the, the weak, the vulnerable, the susceptible, um, because their lives matter too. Therefore, the same pun- they have this, there's the same punishment in effect for adults. Also, in effect, is uh, with, with servants. The same thing is in effect. But on top of that, the master would get compensated 30 pieces of, of silver. This is the, sort of the biblical standard of a value of a slave. So there is this sort of responsibility and compensation for what goes on here. Now, maybe you're bored, and I don't blame you. And you're wondering the question, why spend all this time talking about this stuff that really doesn't apply to us anymore, right? The civil law has passed away. Again, it's to show you this governing principle here in God's society, that God cares about the poor and the weak. See, the weak have protections, the powerless are being looked after, that they have rights, and that they are being cared for. What's being laid out here is what the people never had in Egypt. They never had a voice. They never had the right to even their own life. That could be taken from them. If, if an Egyptian slave master wanted to kill somebody, they could do it, and there would be no consequences for that slave master. And so at this point in history, this is cutting-edge stuff. We have to see this. We have to see that what God is doing here, what he's laying out, this is world-changing. Never before have the weak and the powerless been considered in the way that they have now. Up to this point in history, there was basically one political rule that were one political rule that ran the world, and that was might makes right. If you have power, you are right. If you have money, you are right. If you have influence, you are right. And so you can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. You can do make things happen in, in your own way. And you're right, because you have power. And because of this, the, the poor, the weak, they're marginalized in order to increase the power for those who have it. It's, it's basically what happened in Egypt. We see Pharaoh with all this power, and he's driving his agenda. He's pushing it at the expense of other people. And so God, not only does he deliver his people from that sort of economy, but he says, you will not be like this. My people will be mindful of the weak and the powerless. And so for the first time in history, the marginalized people have a voice. Listen to this. Social justice is God's idea. Social justice is God's idea. See, the civil rights movement, the abolition of slavery has deep roots in what God has laid out here to his people in Israel. This is why a lot of um, slave spirituals have sort of a, a imagery or speaking of Moses and, and the deliverance that they experienced there. It's all rooted right here in what God is laying out for his people. Now, there's some application here. I want, I want to do application first, and then I'm going to tell you why you have the ability to apply this to your life. First of all, the application is, is twofold. If you feel weak and powerless, what you need to do, what you need to see, it's not so much a matter of doing, but a matter of beholding 
okay, uh, of clinging to this truth that God cares for you and he's working on your behalf, right? And God's economy is specifically within a church, right? The church and the state are two separate things here. And while the state provides a lot of protection for the weak and the vulnerable, the church is really where the weak and the marginalized and those who are ostracized are to be, to be brought in and protected and loved and cared for. And so it's in, within the context of God's people that God provides care and love and support for those who are powerless and weak. So what, what you need to do, if you feel powerless, is you need to look to God and to trust that he has provided a way in his church for you to be cared for. You can take heart in this, that Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Those without power, one day you will inherit the earth and the power that comes with it as we rule and reign with Jesus. See, there's a a day that's coming where the the kingdom of God will be here in its fullness, and it's an upside-down kingdom. Jesus says the last will be first, and the first will be last. So those of us who have, who have been subjected to being without power, God's kingdom flips that where you will rule and reign with Christ in power. That's a beautiful truth to hold on to. And so in light of that future glory that's coming, in light of what God is doing to make a way for this to happen, you cling to Jesus. You cling to God and trust in his provision. Even when life is tough. Because it's hard. Life is, life is hard. That's one thing that... I regret about K-Love and sort of Christian culture as a whole is they create this sort of posh, um, easy-peasy, come-to-Jesus-and-life-gets-easier sort of thing. That's not necessarily the truth. In case, if, if you've forgotten, the Apostle Paul, his life got exponentially harder. Actually, almost all the Christians in the New Testament, their life got exponentially harder as they tapped into what true power looks like. And we see that in Jesus, where Jesus emptied himself on the cross. So that's the first application. If you feel powerless, see that God loves you. He cares for you. He's working on your behalf in the context of the church. Two, for those who have power, Your application is to see and to use your power in a way that promotes human flourishing for all. You are to use your power for good for those who are outside of yourself. And in doing so, it'll go well for you. We see this happening with Israel. When God's people are being mindful of God's laws and statues, when they're, when they're being mindful of the oppressed and the meek and, and, the, and the discontented and, and, and the ostracized and marginalized, God's people actually flourish as a whole. And it's when they forget to care for the orphans and the widows, when they forget to take care of those who are, are in poverty and hurting, that's when God's society starts to crumble and, and they, it, things don't go well for them because of their disobedience to it. So those are the two applications. Now let me tell you why. Let me tell you why you can actually do this and why you should do this, follow through on it. Because when we look at the gospel, we see the perfect embodiment of this application. Because God cares so deeply for the poor and the powerless 
And let me just frame this up in spiritual terms here. Everyone in this room is poor and powerless in the sense that you cannot make yourself right. You cannot make yourself fit for the kingdom. You cannot make yourself worthy to experience the fullness of God. You are poor and powerless to do so. And so in light of this spiritual reality that we all carry, this poor, this impoverished in spirit, this powerless in spirit, God looks and he sees the the poor and the needy. He sees the powerless and he sends his son for us. It's because God cares so deeply for the poor and powerless, Jesus comes to earth. And Jesus, what we need to know about him, is the most powerful human to ever set foot on earth. He is the king of all kings. He is the one that holds the world together. He is the image of the invisible God. All power, all authority is his. Jesus, this is, this is the upside-down kingdom here. Jesus could have sat up on his throne and do this, do this, do this. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus empties himself. He lays down his power, his authority. He becomes an infant. In, in, our, in our society, that is perhaps the most um, powerless position you can take. You can probably be no more vulnerable than being an infant, He becomes a child, he grows up, he sets aside the power that God gave him to live a life dependent completely upon God's power, upon the Holy Spirit to guide him through all of life. All his miracles are not done according to his own power, but through the power that God continues to relay through him, he sets aside his power and comes as a man. And on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus takes perhaps what would have been the most culturally um, servant-oriented position to wash his disciples' feet. In that time, people um, wore sandals, dusty roads, no pavement. People's feet got real nasty. And Jesus is in this room with his disciples, and they're like, who's going to wash my feet? My feet are dirty. Somebody's got to come and do it. Where's the servant? And Jesus takes a towel, wraps it around his waist, and he kneels down, and he starts taking the role of a servant to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus, check this out, the superior man, right, the king of all kings, empties himself to take the inferior position, willingly does this to serve his disciples. Now, this is just a sign. This is just pointing forward to what would happen later uh, within the next 24 hours or so when Jesus would take the ultimate position of servanthood where he would bear the sins of all humanity and go to the cross, where he would pay for all the times that people sinned against one another by using power to oppress rather than to promote. And so there's hope. If you are a person of power and you have found yourself in a place where you're, you're using your power to suppress other people and not promote human flourishing, there is hope for you that Jesus has paid for your sin. And he goes to the cross. And he shows us what true power looks like. This is so crazy. Again, the upside-down kingdom. True power looks like emptying yourself to be filled up with the Spirit of God. Jesus empties himself, and he finds himself in a grave. 
And then by the power of God, Jesus is resurrected from the grave. He comes alive. Death can no longer hold him back. It has been defeated once and for all. And true power is displayed in the resurrected Christ. But in that weakness, to backtrack just a little bit, Jesus also shows us what it looks like to cling to the God who cares for the weak and the powerless. See, when Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and he's got sweat and blood pouring from his brow, when he knows that his time is coming, Jesus clings to God and, he, and, and, and I guarantee he prayed the same prayer that he taught his disciples. Your will be done, your kingdom come. He even says, Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Your, your will be done, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus clings to the God who cares. And he even knows that as he's up on the cross, he's, he's offering a sacrifice to express to all the world how deep and how wide and how vast God's love is for those who are poor and powerless, especially those who are spiritually poor and powerless. And so it's because, because of the resurrection that we can trust that we'll come out on the other end. That he, as hard as life might be, as difficult of the challenges that we may face, the resurrection promises a new day, a new day where, where the meek shall inherit the earth, that those of us who feel powerless and poor will reign with our Savior forever. The inheritance of the power of God is ours. What, what access, what grace there is in that. And so the day, the moment when we stand before our maker and we feel the most powerless, right? We have to give an account for our own life. And, and if you think back all the bad things that you've done in your life, you know I have no solid ground to stand upon on my own good works. In that day when we give an account for our life, when you feel powerless and, and vulnerable and weak where God could just crush you, in that moment we find true power in Jesus, we look to Jesus on the cross who conquered death for us, who provided powerfully for us, who was our wonderful Savior, who delivered us from our sins so that we can point to him and say, hey, the only way that I can have access to the kingdom is through his work. Because Jesus emptied himself. He became powerless so that I could have his power. This is the gospel. This is good news for those who feel poor Father, we thank you for your grace, for the way that you love us in such a profound way. You care for us in ways that even as we look through this passage, it seems sort of bizarre, but your heart for your people is so strong and your affections for us are so deep. Father, I pray that that would change us as people to know your love for us and your care and concern for us, to, to, to trust you to look at Christ who set aside the shame of the cross and looked forward to the day when he would sit at your right hand and that we would join him with that joy that's available to us and in the reality of the new heavens, new earth, the, the kingdom of God coming in its fullness, would that shape us now as your people and would we, would we be mindful of those who are poor and powerless? Would we as a church rally around those who need help Give those people a voice, whether it be for the unborn children 
whether it be for those who, who do not have the means to provide for themselves, for those who are ill and old in age, whatever the, whatever the application, would your spirit guide us in that sense so that we would be a people who are set apart, a holy nation, to show people what the kingdom of God looks like. Father, this is my prayer for your church. Would you make us people who love deeply, who love you in response to the great love that you've poured out on us. We're reminded of that love today as we take the body and the blood of Christ and we take it into ourselves. I pray that this would be a grace, a means of grace that would transform us from the inside out to know that it was his body and his blood shed and broken so that mine and ours would not have to be. We praise you for this in Jesus' name.